Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, we heard from the premier last night. We heard from the premier earlier today, and uh, that certainly I think was was good news on the vaccine front. But uh, yeah, I mean it's it's some tough news, both in terms of how bad things are in Alberta at the moment, and the sorts of health restrictions that are going to be needed to to really turn this thing around. So the premier has made his case for why we're acting now, why we're acting in the way that we are. I want to get some reaction uh, from uh, the other side, opposition leader, NDP leader, former Premier Rachel Notley, on the line with us here this afternoon. Ms. Notley, thanks for making some time for us. Welcome to the program. Uh, it's good to chat with you. All right. Well, yeah, look, certainly you've been pressing the, the Premier to do more, to, to take necessary steps. Uh, are we are we finally at that point? What do you make of what's been announced? Well, I mean, I, I guess I, I think that, that these restrictions uh, and these measures have the potential to, to help. And so it's, it's good news. I think what I would offer is a, a few comments. Uh, first of all, it should have happened sooner so that the, the depth and the breadth of the crisis uh, that we are now forced to contend with uh, was smaller. Um, I, I think that the rules need to be applied uh, consistently and uh, across the province. Um, and we and we don't have that right now, so we're going to run into some trouble there. Uh, we also should be enforcing the rules, which is also a, a big problem uh, that has arisen uh, with this government. Um, and then we should be pro- providing adequate support to those who are impacted by them, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the restaurant owner who went off and built himself and, and, and invested in building himself or herself a patio on the strength of the Premier's promise that there would be no no going backwards on this, or whether we're talking about the parents who are at home trying to teach their kids uh, with through a home learning fund. So, so um, those are the, the key things that uh, I'd want to see improved. But, you know, we have moved forward, and, and that's better than, than not moving at all. Has the messaging un- undermined any of this, and, and certainly on schools and, and the importance of keeping schools open? It's It's been a little all over the map, and the decision mm-hmm. regarding schools does conflict with some of what's been said even in recent days. I mean, you mentioned the you know the, the talk about keeping patios open, et cetera. What about the government's communication really over the past month or so? Well, I would argue that the, the, the challenges with the government's communication go back a lot farther than a month. Um, but they were actually on on evidence. On they were being showcased even today and last night, uh, where the premier began by talking about these, you know, scientifically derived uh, public health measures, which have been shown to work before in Alberta, shown to work in jurisdictions all across the world. Um, and he he began by talking about them as restrictions on our freedoms and threats to our livelihoods. Uh, let me tell you this: the threat to our livelihood is. The this virus. And that is what the evidence shows all around the world. The Premier has consistently began begun every conversation about these measures by undermining them himself. So 
honestly, the things you hear said at these rallies, the things you hear said at that ridiculous rodeo in Bowdoin, are literally the things that the premier himself says. And 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 what flows from that are all the other kind of inconsistencies that you describe, whether it's the schools, whether it's the patios, whether it's keeping MLAs in caucus as they're you know taking pot shots at the restrictions that the government's bringing in. All those things flow from that fundamental uh, failed communication from the premier that's pretty much been in place all along. Well, it's interesting because the premier's noted, and, and I don't think he's totally wrong. And, he, and we look at at BC, for example, and BC's cases have, have certainly leveled off in in recent weeks. That you know the, the restrictions that exist there are not manifestly different than than what we've had here in Alberta. So mm-hmm. it does beg the question then, and maybe you just alluded to it: Why are things that much worse here at the moment? Uh, I think there's a couple of issues there. Obviously, I think that there's been a, a lot more consistent communication with the people of BC from both their political leaders as well as the the, the uh, public service leaders. Uh, I think they, they allowed Bonnie Henry to say the things that she thought and to do the things that she recommended. Um, and so as a result, there's been that kind of consistency that's earned more public trust and through that, more compliance. Uh, the other thing that I think is critical, uh, interestingly, is that, um, you know, the Premier himself actually referenced it in a strange way, that we do have a higher labour force participation rate in Alberta than we do in BC, because BC is an older population with a lot of folks who are retired. But what that means then is that, in fact, uh, transmission does occur in workplaces, which, of course, we know we really know that, yet this government in, repeatedly insists that it doesn't, and they fail to enforce safety rules in those settings. So I think that that is an, another thing. So there's a, a difference in compliance that I would argue comes from public trust, and then also a failure by this government to, to really strategically identify where the risk exists and, and put in measures there to, to, um, to reduce it. So in terms of supporting these restrictions and supporting Albertans affected by them, and, and you've talked uh-huh. about supports for businesses, maybe other things like paid sick leave, et cetera. So with, with the legislature not sitting right now, what, what kind of challenges does that pose in terms of you know, amending the, the government's response here, bringing forward some of these other initiatives? Well, it absolutely does pose a, a big challenge. I mean, in terms of coming up with more uh, and consistent supports for these small businesses that have been surprisingly impacted, uh, that's something that the government can do, quite frankly, without the legislature. In terms of something like sick pay, and let's just be clear, sick pay is something that the that the science panel that exists in Ontario that reports publicly has clearly identified uh, could uh, reduce the rate of transmission and the rate of infection by 50% if people had sick pay to be able to stay home when they feel these symptoms. Um, that's something that has to happen by way of the legislature. And we've been really pushing them on it. And and now suddenly we're not in the legislature where we should actually be showing up to work in order to provide support for the very people across this province who still have to show up for work. And and it does need to be done in the House, and, and the evidence is there for it. And it, there's no place in the country that needs it more than Alberta. I mean, we are leading the continent for the number of cases. And so we need to give people the, the ability uh, to keep their, their co-workers safe and themselves safe uh, should they come down with symptoms instead of forcing them back into the workplace because they can't afford uh, to, to not get a paycheck that week. Mm-hmm. 
And it's interesting. I mean, you, you've been on both sides of this, both in government and, and in opposition. And there is give and take in politics. There is disagreement. There, there is an mm-hmm. obligation of the opposition to hold governments to account and, and to criticize where warranted. What do you think about, you know, the, the approach that, and, and the premier sort of pleaded for this, and let's kind of come together, let's leave politics out of this. To, to what extent do you feel an obligation to, where it makes sense, to, to try to support the messaging or try to find common ground or, or you know, to try to work with the government where there's, there's room to? How do you balance all of that with, you know, the job of an opposition leader? Well, you know, it is a challenge. Um, I think that we we certainly do, as an opposition, support the messaging of the Chief Medical Officer of Health as much as we can with respect to encouraging people to stay safe. And, of course, we did work with the government uh, two two weeks ago. Uh, I proposed that we would uh, accelerate legislation in order to ensure uh, that that people could get three hours paid leave to go get vaccinations. And so that was our idea. And we, we threw that out there. And in fact, we did work with the government to pass a law in something like 30 minutes, which, to be clear, is a complete, uh, you know, that's that's happened once before in the history of the province. So so I am proud that we were able to do that. And it provided meaningful support and, and help to, to hundreds of thousands of Albertans who otherwise wouldn't have gotten that leave. Um, so I think there is time to do that. But on the flip side, this is a government that itself is not working with science to make its decisions. I mean, if you look at the map of Alberta that is exempt from the restrictions that were announced yesterday, it looks a great deal like the map of the constituency associations represented by the COVID-17. And and so, you know, we cannot have decisions made on that basis in this province. We need to have decisions made on on the evidence and the science um, and what's best for the greatest number of people, not by a premier who's worried about whether he will or won't survive a leadership vote. And so when it gets to that kind of thing, which it has in Alberta more than in any other province across the country, um, yeah, it, it does become a bit political, and, and, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, we'll, we'll find those common areas where we can. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, as you know, and it, because I, I noticed that you shared the article yesterday, which I appreciate, but uh, I wrote a piece uh, criticizing these, these some of these dissident MLAs. I, I don't know that they've been contributing in any meaningful way to improving the situation. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, I'm, I'm not convinced that that should be a, a fireable offense, per se, that, that there, there can be disagreement, even some fundamental disagreement on certain issues within a caucus. But you, know, you alluded to this already. You, you believe uh-huh. that uh, it would be important for the premier to to deal with this and and to punish these MLAs. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I think within a parliamentary democracy, Rob, you can have a, a, a really robust conversation about, you know, how much uh, caucus discipline there should or shouldn't be in any given situation. And over the years, different parties have allowed different free votes on different issues and all those things. But I think that when you are dealing with a century, uh, a century leading crisis, where the resolution of that crisis is profoundly dependent on uh, clear communication and clear uh, public uh, buy-in uh, in a way that's, that's unlike anything else. Uh, you know, like with the Fort McMurray fire, we weren't asking every Albertan to go in and fight that fire. Um, but that's kind of what we're doing right now with with COVID. And so communication and, and the rules that are put in place are, are, are of a different nature. 
And the role of government MLAs to support that is different. And that's why I think it should be treated differently and they should be held to account for is essentially inviting and validating uh, non-compliance with the law. We'll leave it there. Rachel Lotley, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for this. Okay, you take care. Thanks, Rob. You as well. That is Alberta's opposition leader, former premier. She's the leader of the uh, NDP, Rachel Notley. And so her thoughts on, well, a bunch of stuff. But I do want to get to the uh, issue of vaccines. And it's all happened very quickly here today. Now, originally, Alberta had already opened up vaccinations uh, for those age 12 to 15 with underlying health conditions. And I think that was a few weeks ago now. Uh, and we knew that there was some some decision coming. We've seen some very favorable data from Pfizer regarding their vaccine and um, some, some trials involving the uh, 12 to 15 age group. So Health Canada today has officially approved that vaccine for that age group. And right away, Alberta announced, as you heard earlier, that we are going to open up uh, vaccine appointments to the general public, everybody 12 and up in two phases, one starting tomorrow, and then the uh, the rest starting next week. So this, I think, can go a long way in, in hopefully getting us closer to some level of herd immunity. You know, if we're not going to be vaccinating children and only vaccinating adults, we would need, uh, well, probably in all reality, you know, somewhere over 90% of adults to get vaccinated if we were hoping to get to herd immunity which for a variety of reasons probably isn't realistic. But this can go a long way. And obviously we've seen recently in schools that look, kids, kids can get this disease, kids can spread this disease. And yes, in some cases, kids can have serious outcomes. So I think this is a positive decision. Let's get some uh, thoughts here uh, from our next guest. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Dr. Jim Kellner, uh, pediatrician, subspecialist in pediatric infectious diseases, professor and head of the Department of Pediatrics at the uh, University of Calgary. Dr. Kellner, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, let me. That's that's on me. There we go, Doctor Kellner. Thanks for joining us. Here, welcome oh, to the program. Is it, is that better now? There we go. Yeah, I, okay. I, I think okay. that that was my fault. I didn't press the right button there. Okay. So, Thank like you, I say, you. I mean, <laughs> things have happened quickly today with Health Canada's announcement, Alberta's uh, the Alberta government's announcement. Uh, what have you made of these developments? Yeah, I think it, uh, it's a lot of news in one day, that's for sure. And I just think yeah. it's really great news from the perspective of um, not just uh, vaccinations for children, but uh, just the whole approach to how we're going to get out of this pandemic and the importance to consider that uh, we'll likely have to um, immunize a much uh, a larger percentage of the population age-wise than we might have thought initially. So I think this is really great news. It is. And, you know, like I say, we've seen some really encouraging data from Pfizer, you know, the idea that, and again, I mean, this means something specific and maybe people interpret it a different way. We talk about 100% efficacy in the 12 to 15 age group in these these trials. I mean, that that's, it's a great result, but maybe explain the context of that. Sure. So, um, you know, there's... Um to try to be brief, there's three numbers that we look at with all the vaccines. The first mm-hmm. number is the number of how likely is it to prevent an infection where there's a positive test for the virus and any kind of symptoms. Right. Um, and then that's in the middle. And at the other end, how likely is it to prevent severe infections, hospitalization, ICU and death? And then at the other end, how likely is it to prevent transmission from person to person? Here, that 100% was based on preventing any kind of infection. And it was, to be honest, when you look at the vaccines and the way these clinical trials are done with the smaller trials, 
the goal of saying how well does the vaccine prevent infection is actually a secondary goal of the of the trial because the numbers about 3000 in this case about 20 300 children in the trial, it's not actually large enough to know for sure that you'll get enough cases occur that you can say how well it prevents the infection or not. Um, And it's more to measure uh, safety and uh, immune response. So the fact that they got this number of cases, and it's 100% yes, but the the confidence around that is quite wide. The confidence intervals were 75 to 100%. So yes, as high as 100%, but also as low as 75%, because there just weren't that many cases. So that's good, and it was statistically significant, and and it's all very positive for sure. Um, But it is important to remember the context that for that, it's based on relatively small number of cases. The stronger evidence comes from the evidence about the safety and the immune response. Yeah, and we would say, I mean, 100% of the cases were in the placebo group. But as you said, I mean, you know, it it, it It is a bit of a number of situations. Yeah. Right, exactly. And but really encouraging signs on the safety side, the immune response side. Uh, So that's encouraging to see. We're also expecting some data, by the way, on the um, the 11, I think the 5 to 11 is, is what they're now looking at? Yeah, the next age group for Pfizer is 6 to 11. Or 6 to 11. Um, and then after that, it's uh, two years to five years. And both of those arms of the trial, they're, they're um, running right now. And then after that, they intend to go down as low as six months. And um, so we will, uh, I mean, the, the 6 to 11 um, information date on that could be expected any time in the next few, not any time, but within, um, uh, within a few months, certainly later this year, to, uh, 2021. And, and just to clarify, this is Pfizer-BioNTech. I think Moderna's got some data coming, but right now it's, it's just that Pfizer vaccine. It's just Pfizer. And so Pfizer, with yeah. their main trial initially, started went all the way down to age 16. Um, the Moderna vaccine um, went down to age 18, and they're right now um, in the process of collecting information on a trial of 12 to uh, 17-year-olds, uh, which once that comes, they'll put them in the same place as, as Pfizer. And then similarly, they have a 6 to 11 uh, year um, trial planned and a two-year to five-year and then and then infants to two years after that. Um, they're likely going to be doing um, uh, some of that uh, uh, trial in Canada. And they're going, though, with the 12 to 17-year-olds. So data from them could uh, is definitely expected soon. Oh, that's good. And, and let's talk about why it's important. I mean, you already mentioned herd immunity, and, and it's going to be very difficult to achieve if we're only vaccinating adults. But th- there's other reasons why we want to do this, as we've seen, especially more recently, right? Kids can get this virus. Kids yeah. can have severe illness. Kids can spread this. So it's it's not just about the herd immunity argument, right? Uh, for sure. And, um, you know, and I don't want to overstate it, but because we do know that uh, uh, fortunately children are far less likely on balance to get severe outcomes from uh, from COVID-19. So I wouldn't try to say that at all. But there are some children who are at high risk. Um, and um, so, and, and that in Alberta, you know, we started the program of giving the vaccine to high risk 12 to 15 year olds a couple of weeks ago on that basis of um of knowing that the, the approval was likely coming soon officially and that there was already a, a federal recommendation about potentially using it. So it, there's definitely a benefit to protect um, uh, children for their own sake uh, from uh, getting uh, COVID-19 infections. And then all the children who are going to grow into adults, we don't know how long the benefit will be there for, but uh, there could be some some part of the benefit that lasts for a long time. And so there's a value to immunizing children to protect them as, uh, themselves, 
but in addition, there's this really big thing of, of contributing to this idea of uh, herd immunity or community immunity, where as many people as possible are, are protected and can reduce the transmission. The other thing related um, to that, Rob, just to say is that, you know, right now, if you think about it around the world, there's a lot of people who have um, COVID-19 infections. Hundreds of millions of people probably have infections right now. And so this virus has the chance to mutate and form new variants on a regular basis now because there's so many people who are infected. Part of trying to uh, get as many people around the world immunized as possible is to reduce the number of people who are actually infected with the, with the, the virus at any time. And in doing so, we can anticipate over time that that'll help decrease the, the rise of new variants because it's directly proportional to how much infection is going on, the number of variants that can arise. And so uh, if fewer people are infected, there'll be fewer variants. That's a sort of a longer-term goal down the road as well that includes immunizing children. And, you know, it's unclear exactly, you know, when we'll be able to 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 get all of these uh, immunizations done. And I think there's some optimism that maybe we're a little bit ahead of the timetable. But this can make a huge difference, certainly come September and, and getting some sense of normalcy back in school. And, you know, I mean, we do other vaccinations in schools. I wonder if there's yeah. an opportunity to, you know, incorporate this into that. For sure. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of the folks involved, public health uh, nurses and officials who are involved in regular school-based uh, vaccine programs are, are working on the COVID vaccine programs right now in the uh, community centers and the various places that the vaccines are being delivered. Um, but for sure, a component of vaccine delivery here can be in the schools. I hope that there's going to be um, a considerable amount of vaccine delivered to uh, uh, 12 to 17-year-old children this summer outside of schools, uh, you know, in advance of the start of the junior high and high school year. Um, but second doses and, um, and, um, and, and doses to children haven't been immunized through school-based programs. It's a perfectly feasible thing to think about that happening. Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Dr. Kellner, appreciate your input on this. Thanks for making okay. some time for us here. Yeah, thank you very much. Take care. All the best. You as well. Uh, that is Dr. Jim Kellner, the University of Calgary professor, head of the Department of Pediatrics, subspecialist in uh, pediatric infectious diseases. So something he's been following very closely, this data uh, with regards to these vaccines and the impact on younger individuals. And again, it's all really, really encouraging. So Alberta's uh, taking the lead on this. Good to see. And so as of Monday... The opportunity to book appointments for everybody 12 and up. So that's, uh, I think that's going to be a big step to ensuring that, you know, we can hopefully get close to or, or get to that, that level of herd immunity. Off the top of this hour, I want to come back to a uh, conversation we've been having over the last week or so, and it concerns Bill C-10. And this, this is a, a large uh, government bill that, uh, among other things, is is meant to overhaul the Broadcast Act. And essentially, that's the, the general thrust of this bill, to put it in real simple terms, is to modernize the Broadcast Act. And, and in fairness, I mean, you know, the Broadcast Act goes back to a, a very different kind of media world. And broadcasting today is much different than it was, you know, say, 40 years ago. So whether or not that needs to happen or what that looks like, I think reasonable people can disagree. What's happened over the last couple of weeks here, though, is uh, that, that we really got into some, some government overreach here. That it went from, you know, how can we regulate the content that big tech is generating? You know, Netflix, Spotify, or, you know, even outfits like YouTube. To now suddenly getting into the realm of what users are posting online. And the idea that somehow the government or a, a quasi-government body like the CRTC would be regulating 
what individual Canadians are posting online. It, it just seemed crazy. And it's almost impossible to see what sort of a justification there would be for that. So there was an amendment put into the bill originally, uh, an exception that was built in, and an exemption to, to make it clear that, no, we're not looking to regulate user-generated content. But then that exemption was removed. The government now appears to be backing down on this uh, after uh, a couple of weeks of pretty intense criticism, but um, still all kinds of mixed messages in terms of what it is they're doing and why. Well, someone who's been uh, following all of this very closely is a uh, former vice chair, in fact, uh, of the CRTC. He's also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Peter Menzies uh, joins us on the line today, and he's got a great piece up at uh, financialpost.com today. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure. Well, it's it's been an interesting few days on this file, hasn't it? Because we had a, a disastrous interview from the Heritage Minister, a, kind of a disastrous attempt in, in a question period to defend all of this. Now a bit of a climb down. What, what do you make of all of this, first of all? Well, I'm hesitant to, I mean, there's a statement about there being a climb down, but we haven't actually seen anything yet. Yeah. Um, what I make of it, actually, overall, is like in, in your reference, you said they started off wanting to modernize the Broadcasting Act. And I think that's where they got into trouble right off the start. Um, I mean, the Internet is an entirely new technology. It's so different from broadcasting, right? I mean, there are things that resemble broadcasting that take place on the Internet, for sure. And, I mean, they started off, as you said, wanting to um, target streaming, streaming companies, right? Netflix mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff, right? Right. I mean, put aside the fact that Netflix isn't really a broadcaster, it's a video store. But nevertheless, if that's what you wanted to do, then go after that. So if what you were, if you wanted to give the CRTC, which is a broadcasting regulator by nature and by name, um, control over that, you needed to really use a scalpel and carve them out of the Internet. Mm -hmm. And so they made a fundamental mistake right off the start of just saying, okay, the CRTC is in charge of the entire Internet. And that's just very difficult for the CRTC to do. I mean, you can have a philosophical discussion about the rest, but the CRTC is designed for closed networks, right? It's designed yeah. around spectrum, scarce public resources that people get licensed for. The Internet is infinite. It's new. It's disruptive. I get that it's troubled people. It's not without its issues. But they were in trouble from the start on this. And then the final, the removal of, of the one clause they had that made it charter friendly um, really got them into trouble. Well, it sure did. And I mean, I, I think, you know, that, that took a bad bill and it just made it disastrous, I think, in, in so many respects. But why, why go there in the first place? I mean, what, what did you make of that? Well, the whole process started, uh, you know, like in the Financial Post column today, I tried to sort of say that, like, how did we get there, right? I mean, it started back in 2017 when the previous Heritage Minister, Melanie Jolie, who was, you know, she was like this modern, I get the internet sort of person. I don't even subscribe to cable. I watch streaming companies. I get that. She, you know, she talked Netflix into forming Netflix Canada and, you know, guaranteeing, uh, you know, promising it would spend $100 million a year, it spent way more than that in the meantime. Um, and that troubled people who with strongly, with with interests strongly vested 
in the CRT system. These are, you have to understand, these are people whose entire business models are built around achieving regulatory goals, right? They're not aimed at necessarily, I mean, they like to get audiences for their work, but they're not necessarily aimed at that. They're aimed at getting funding for their work. And so it's very difficult for them to adapt to change. And lots mm -hmm. of people have run into that in the last 20 years, lots of businesses in terms of adapting to change. But the internet has, um, I guess the best thing is that the CRTC's job was to, was to regulate the gatekeepers, people like you who decide who gets on your show and who doesn't, right? They want to make sure that you're fair. They want to make sure that there's a system where marginalized groups, whether it's through community radio or Aboriginal radio or other, things, other vehicles like that, have a voice. The Internet gave everybody that, right? Um, so it's, it's like the, the Internet is about the gate, the freedom for the gate kept. So to make a long story short, when they suddenly said, okay, the CRTC is now going to be responsible for your TikTok video uh, and your YouTube uploads and, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the videos of your grandchildren's, your cats, I mean, it could have been all that sort of stuff. It was just like legislative and regulatory overreach that's, I mean, it's going to be legendary. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, look, and I don't know what motivated the government to, to maybe want to go down this path, but just practically speaking, Peter, and, and from your perspective, understanding how the CRTC operates, how, how would this even be possible? To what extent could the CRTC even begin to assert jurisdiction over all of this? I don't think it is possible um, in terms of that. I mean, the, the only... It, it, the only practical approach for the CRTC to take would be to once it gets once it has this land on its lap, would for it to say, okay, we're going to carve out our scope, and all we care about are online streaming companies that make more than eighty million dollars or a hundred million dollars a year. Everything else we forbear on. We're mm -hmm. not touching. Right. That's the only practical way to do it. Um, it's still a problem because the CRTC over the years will would probably grow its jurisdiction and somebody would say there's a problem here and there. But that's the only practical way to do it. There's about 400 people work at the CRTC um, there. And, and I mean, Twitter and Facebook right now employ thousands of people, right? Thousands and thousands to moderate the content on their platforms. Um, and... <laughs> the CRTC would be basically taking over that role. But in terms of the motivations, I mean, we've seen all kinds of shifting rationales for this. It's about making big tech pay its fair share, leveling the playing field, or promoting Canadian content, or dealing with copyright issues, or you know, guarding against hate speech. It's just been all over the map. How, how, do, how do we begin to make sense of you know, the thinking here? Well, if you want to make big tech pay its fair share, tax them. Let's try that. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's a good place to start, right? I mean, apply GST, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're not paying that, but we would be paying that. Why we're not paying GST on on uh, on, on some of these things is just, I mean, that's just pure politics. Um, it, it makes it doesn't make good policy at all, right? You could just tax them and shift the funds to to uh, help the cultural groups, but it really started when Jolie made the mistake of not having Netflix carve out a certain percentage for Francophone production. 
The entire system, CRTC system, and most of Cultural Canada funding is based on two-thirds English, one-third French. And and that's very, very important, right? I mean, um, people can roll their eyes all they want, and I'm sure some of your listeners will. But uh, that's very, very important to Quebec. Culture and cultural protection is always a hill to die on, right? And so mm-hmm. when they saw that, every there was a huge uproar, and that began the lobby. And as it went along, the cable companies jumped on and said, hey, let's level the playing field. Other groups jumped on, and the final straw was that, that had that amendment removed was music groups going in, right? So you have this really weird situation that at the end of the day, you've got all these cultural groups who have always been great champions for rights and freedoms, gay rights, indigenous rights, trans rights, you know, all these, uh, you know, rights and then very progressive people are all of a sudden in this really awkward position where they're, you know, somehow, oops, we ended up um, backing legislation that suppresses free speech. Um, so I think everybody, there's a lot of well-intended people here, but as the old saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. This thing's just a mess. Everybody needs to take a deep breath, back off, start again. Right. You're using the wrong tool in the wrong way. So as you say, talk of a climb down is, is I guess at this point, just talk. So when we actually see some some change, I guess maybe that'll be a little more believable at that point. So you're you're not convinced yet that they've necessarily backed down on this. No, um, I mean, part of the deal, every piece of legislation that governments do has to go through a charter. They can call it shower, a charter check, right? You fire it off to Justice Department. They they run it through, and and when they approved this bill, um, they specifically mentioned this now deleted amendment as okay. This is this is why this you know um, is okay with the charter sort of stuff, and 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 they took that out, and then they said it didn't matter, and now they say well we're going to put something back in to make it absolutely clear that we didn't, but if you put it something you know we'll have to wait and see. And the thing that bothered me the most was with the so-called climb down was that they, they said, oh, and when once this has royal assent, we'll issue an order in council that will tell the CRTC exactly how they should do this. Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of thinking you should do that before it passes, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like... I mean, let's be transparent about this, right? And what, one of the huge problems with this, um, just to go on, is there was no public consultation either, you know? And I yeah. think every party in the House of Commons fell for this. They got lobbied by, you know, the Francophone cultural sector. They got lobbied by uh, the cable companies, Bell and, and Rogers, those guys, significant, powerful lobby groups. They got lobbied by the music industry, but they never got lobbied by... You would, uh, you would, we, ne- we never got the chance to have our voice. The people, there are 25,000 people who have full or part-time jobs now uploading their content onto YouTube, right? There are all kinds of artists and, and musicians and producers in Canada who have adapted and built their business models on a free and open internet. They never got a chance to have their voice. So they ended up with something that, once people got wise to it, and I must say they scored a significant old goal in order to get people's attention, um, 
it's time to start again. We'll leave it there. As mentioned, uh, you got a piece up today at financialpost.com and uh, much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Peter Menzies, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Vic. It was great. I'm happy to have the opportunity. Good luck with the rest of your day. Much appreciated. Peter Menzies, a former vice chair of the CRTC, is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. So some interesting thoughts from him on this whole debacle. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Riggenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Again, our number in Calgary, 403-974-8255, Edmonton, 780-496-0063. The School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary is uh, launching a research uh, series, Mapping Out Alberta's Fiscal, Economic, and Health Future. And yeah, we're very much at a crossroads here in Alberta, uh, coming off a rough few years, and, and then last year, of course, one of the worst in, in our history. And we face some unique challenges here in Alberta. I think it's you know one of the reasons why Alberta's GDP dropped more in, in 2020 than I think any other province. Now, there's some, some reasons for optimism when we look forward, but uh, there are certainly some challenges. And so that, that's kind of the general theme that a lot of this research is going to explore. One of the papers uh, released today uh, takes a closer look at uh, fiscal planning and sustainability in Alberta. And, you know, look, even when times are good, we haven't always made the best choices when it comes to budgeting, when it comes to sort of long-term fiscal planning. And so if we can't figure that out in the good times, then obviously that, that poses some challenges when times are bad. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this research and uh, including obviously his uh, paper today uh, that looks more specifically at this issue, this issue. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Trevor Toom, who is an associate professor of economics, soon to be full professor, by the way, uh, at the <laughs> University of Calgary, research fellow at the School of Public Policy. Uh, well, congrats on that, uh, Trevor, by the way, and uh, thanks for joining us here today. Oh, thank you very much, and it is great to be here. We appreciate you making some time for us here. So when we talk about uh, fiscal planning and stability, and that's what your paper today looks at, because we've had challenges with this in Alberta, haven't we? Yeah, and the rising debt levels that we're seeing in Alberta the past year, the past couple of years, that's actually something that we've been seeing consistently since the financial crisis. We're now almost 15 years into very consistent increases in debt levels in the province, and it's leading us to a level at almost 25% of GDP soon that we have not actually seen since the 1930s. So we are entering some new fiscal territory so that even after the pandemic dust is fully settled, uh, we're going to have to think very carefully about where we go from here. Let's talk about what's unique about Alberta, because other provinces have their economic ups and downs. And, and obviously for governments, there are fiscal pressures and challenges when, when times are not good. We do seem to see a lot more volatility here. Yeah, and that is a feature of an economy where one of its larger and more important sectors, like Alberta's oil and gas sector, is exposed to international price fluctuations that are large and unpredictable. And so our economy is more volatile than elsewhere, and we face more volatility in even interest rates, the government borrowing rates rising and falling more uh, than we see elsewhere. And that's, that means more than just the the economic ups and downs are something that policymakers need to think about, of course, but it also exposes the provincial government to fiscal risk. Uh, and more uh, the more debt that a uh, entity, or in this case, a government has, the more exposed they are to adverse 
movements in interest rates or economic growth rates. And Alberta's kind of excess volatility there is such that for a province like Ontario, BC, or Quebec, for them to have debt to GDP of about 40%, that exposes them to the same degree of fiscal risk that Alberta is exposed to at only about a 10% debt to GDP uh, level. So when we're talking about 25%, it may not seem like a lot relative to others, but given our volatility, uh, it's a riskier situation to be in for us than others. It is. And, and, you know, we're seeing a combination of factors here because as this becomes more acute, we seem to have less flexibility to deal with. There, there's a couple of jarring graphs in, in your piece here, one that looks at, uh, you know, the debt to GDP ratio, and we see the direction that's going. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, natural resource revenues that in the past have given us some, some real cushion on this and, in fact, had us more or less debt free for some time. Um, you know, that we just don't have that to rely on at the moment. Indeed, if you look at the couple uh, years or decades prior to the financial crisis, we would be having about 25% to to one-third of the budget coming in the form of resource revenues, as high as 60% if you go back to the late 70s. But now, since 2014, natural resource revenues have averaged less than 10% of total revenues. And we have never seen such a period of low amounts of resource revenues here in Alberta since the Leduc number one discovery in the late 1940s. And so that relative to the roughly one quarter of our budget that we need to come uh, from resource revenues compared to what resource revenues actually are, we've never seen a wider gap between what we need and what we have than we are seeing right now. And that is another aspect of the new fiscal territory that we're that we're entering. And, and part of that is, of course, due to the, the pandemic and low oil prices that we saw through 2020, but it's not entirely. I mean, that volatility, our exposure to movements and royalty revenues predate the, the pandemic has been a challenge that we haven't yet come to grips with, but soon we're going to have to. It's interesting to think. I mean, you know, if, if the pandemic had hit, say, in, you know, 2006 instead of 2021, uh, how different Alberta's position would be. And in, in what sense has the pandemic exacerbated all, all of these problems right now? Well, through 2020, with the, the low oil prices, but also the economic disruptions from the pandemic and the, the additional spending that uh, the government's been, been needing to do, the debt levels have risen quite notably, but more here in Alberta than in most other provinces. Only Newfoundland is experiencing a more difficult fiscal uh, change than Alberta is. And and what that means is that our future exposure to interest rate increases or decreases in econo- economic growth rates are, are larger. And so after the pandemic, bringing those debt levels back down to something uh, around 10% or so would bring us back into a position that's comparable to what BC, Ontario, and Quebec have in terms of fiscal risk. And I guess going forward, because of this volatility, I think it may very well be that governments have responded to the pandemic in a way that might accelerate um, you know, technological change or the energy transition. We've seen a lot of effort in that direction in the United States and likely will continue to see here in Canada as well. And so that might itself affect the future path of oil production in Alberta that can have long-term implications for revenues for the province.
Yeah, and even some of the forecasts for, you know, some of the economic rebounds as, as we come out of this pandemic. And, you know, we, we'll, we'll see an increase in economic activity. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, yeah. you know, it sort of gets us back to, to pre-pandemic levels, doesn't it? Well, if it gets us back to pre-pandemic levels, then we'll, we'll be very lucky. I mean, and not just us. I mean, this is a generic statement that there's going to be a large rebound almost for sure as the vaccines uh, roll out uh, more significantly over the next couple of months. But getting back up to 80, 90 percent of where we were in in certain sectors, there's going to be a a lot lower international demand for tourism activities, for example, in Alberta. And that's going to be something that may take some time uh, to alleviate. But if oil prices right now, they're doing quite well uh, because of economic recovery around the world, we might be able to balance the books by 2024 or 2025 without uh, additional revenue uh, changes. And what one has to think the government's hoping for that to occur. But Mm -hmm. thinking about the longer term is important here because an aging population, rising health care costs, uh, because of that aging, that's a much bigger fiscal challenge than COVID. And as we get deeper into the 2020s, that pressure on the healthcare system is going to be growing uh, much more significantly. So the, the demographic change that we're facing, that's a bigger fiscal shock than COVID. It's just slower moving. And uh, we do need to start thinking about those longer term challenges. Now, here's the thing, and I mean, it's not as though this paper spells out that we need to do A, B, C, and D, um, and it's not as though, you know, you've, you've completely uh, are avoiding any, any, you know, suggesting any solutions. I think the point is, and as you point out in your piece, that look, there are a range of options, and, you know, some might have their preferences, obviously, but, you know, there, there are things we can do. They may be tough decisions, to be sure, but we do have options, don't we? Yeah, and I think that's really the value, not not just of this paper, which is more setting the stage, highlighting what the challenges are, highlighting um, the unique risks fiscally that Alberta faces that others don't. Really just um, the takeaway from the piece, from my perspective, is that we have to start thinking about these longer-term challenges and make sensible decisions before we're kind of induced to later on down the road. But then it's the Uh, nearly 20 other papers that the school will be rolling out on various fiscal and economic and health challenges where the pros and cons of more specific options will be explored. And so I'd encourage everyone to uh, to follow that at policyschool.ca. Right on. We'll leave it there. Professor Toom, always great to have you with us here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Take care. All the best. That is Trevor Toom, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy, uh, so his piece is up, as mentioned, policyschool.ca, but they got a whole series uh, of papers coming. And, and th- this is a really important conversation because it is a bit of a crossroads here for Alberta and everything we've been through over the past five years, especially over the last year. And how do we set ourselves up for success going forward? Economic success, obviously, but but also ensuring that, you know, we're successful in getting back to balance and, and dealing with this this debt load. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.